Today on Inland Journal and the Inland Journal podcast, relieving the crushing financial debt faced by formerly incarcerated people. And a Spokane journalist talks about reporting on religion. But first, a Spokane man has been given a window to the past, back to the day when his father served as a young soldier during World War II. In November 1941, weeks before the Pearl Harbor attack, 21-year-old Harold Voltz left his home in Ohio and enlisted in the service. He went to boot camp and was trained to become a scout in the Army's 4th Armored Division. He was stationed at several training facilities around the country and then sent to England for more training. A month after the D-Day invasion in 1944, Voltz went to France for his first real taste of combat. All the while, he wrote letters to his folks, nearly 400 of them, and his mother saved them. 75 years later, Harold Voltz's letters are now in the hands of his son, also named Harold. Dear folks, have a few spare moments to myself so that I drop you a few lines to let you know I am now in France and still feeling fine and hope you are the same. And being quite busy, so if you don't hear from me very often, you'll understand. When my father was drafted in the army, he made a promise to his folks that he would write whenever he could. And he kept his promise based upon all these letters. And this is just a a smidgen of what he wrote because this is just his folks and the siblings that were still under roof there. Uh, It's not to friends. I don't have, you know, any, any of the friends, girlfriends, other acquaintances that that he would write to. The letters are mostly ordinary, not much in the way of salacious details, and certainly not forthcoming about where he was and what he was doing. They couldn't be specific where they were at, what they were doing, things of that nature, because every letter, you'll see the the letters that they're stamped, passed by Army Examiner, and then the commander writes his name on the bottom of the letter, uh, the envelope of the letter. And so you, you open up a letter and it might be like Swiss cheese that they shared too much, and they snipped it out. So how much could you learn through his letters? Because I imagine he couldn't learned, tell you very much. I learned much. about a different man than I knew growing up under his, under his uh, uh, fatherly uh, guidance. I learned uh, he's totally, not totally different, but I, I learned some new things about him. Kind of understood where he, why he was the way he was. Um, he was known as the banker in the unit because he either sent his money home or he had enough money so others could borrow from because they were losing it playing cards or playing dice or gambling or whatever. They, they had, most of the other guys didn't have any money left over. So he was the responsible guy payday. in the unit. And he was the responsible guy. So did you get a sense through his letters about how scared he might have been or how the anxiety mm-hmm. that he went through? He, he kept reassuring uh, his mother and father, my grandparents, that, that he was okay. I mean, that's basically why he was writing. He said, I'm fine, you know. Oh, I, I chopped off my finger the other day, but they sewed it back on. Things like that. <laughs> I mean, he had, he had some infections and stuff like that. Was he wounded in combat? He received a Purple Heart, so yes, he was wounded uh, in combat. He uh, shrapnel 
uh, fragments from into his hand. So not life, nothing, not life threatening. Nothing, nothing that was life threatening. No, he also earned a bronze star for valor, valor uh, uh, during the the uh, uh, Bastonia campaign, the Battle of the Bulge. Tell Buds and Margie, Bud is his brother, that about the only way they can hear from me is by reading your letters. Here of late, I've been receiving a lot of mail, and in fact, not enough time to read through them. Harold Voltz has a map that traces the path of his father's 4th Armored Division from its landing on the French coast in July of 1944. And so I knew where my dad was at exactly, according to the date on the letter. The soldiers moved steadily east, finally to Czechoslovakia, and they finished the war in May 1945 in an area a little northeast of Munich, Germany. Last spring, 75 years after his father's tour of duty, Volz went back to retrace his dad's route. I took a tour with a Band of Brothers, uh, beyond, it's called Beyond Band of Brothers Tour, just this past May uh, for the 75th anniversary of Normandy and uh, Bastonia in Battle of the Bulge. So what did that trip mean to you to be able to go overseas? It was the greatest. I was able to acquire a personal tour guide. It's called Tours by Locals. But you can hire the tour guide, and if you set up your own itinerary. He took along a battle map that allowed him to follow the 4th Armored Division's march through Europe. He had arranged for us to stay in a a country farmhouse in Laglisi. I discovered that I was sleeping in the same area that my dad had bivouacked in. And, and so we so how, we, how did that feel? That was cool. That was I'm gave me it still gives me chill bumps to think you know my dad went through. I'm seeing everything that my dad had seen. But was really fascinating was hitting these named places that were combat areas and here's these little plaques isolated from civilization. You know, saying thank you, 4th Armored Division, for what you did in freeing us from the Germans. By then, Volz had combined the letters into a loosely bound book. He took a copy with him to the War Museum at Bastogne, and they showed some interest. So when he came home, he was determined to turn his first attempt at a book into something a little more professional. And so he went and found photos of the day, including some of his dad and his buddies. He picked excerpts from the letters, added a flourish here and there, and self-published the book. Initially, I I sent them to libraries. In fact, uh, the presidential library, William McKinley, which is in Canton, Ohio, they wanted the letters. And I go, I don't know if I want to just put letters in the vault, you know, and no one has access to them. So that's why I compiled the book. The program usually scheduled over many of these stations, The Art of Living, will not be heard at this time in order that the National Broadcasting Company may bring you Bob Hope. We now take you to the South Pacific. From somewhere in the South Pacific, we present the Bob Hope Show. My dad loved the radio. They all loved to listen to the radio. And he mentioned one letter. Um, I just got finished listening to, to Bob Hope and Red Skelton. And about, I about bawled. I about cried my eyes out because so, I was laughing so hard. 
<laughs> from them. And so I did. I had put in a little segment about who Bob Hope was during World War II and what and who was Red Skelton. Thank you and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And now for the news. Detroit, Michigan. The 1940 automobiles are now on the assembly line. I bought a new car a couple of days ago. Already the fenders are wrinkled because it's worried about the payments. <laughs> It's a very comfortable car, though, only it's a little close to the ground. In fact, the seat is so close to the ground, every time you hit a bump, you get a road burn. I've gotten communication from um, three other children from uh, the, the men I put in the back of the book that my dad served with, and they were just, they didn't have anything either, or very few letters, and he says, you want to read this? I'm thinking about my dad, because your dad was so thorough in, in what he explained that I can visualize my dad Another man that I contacted, this is all through like Facebook and stuff like that, but um, uh, another man wrote, uh, his father was in the A troop, my dad was in B troop, and uh, my dad, and this was like in May of 45 or so, my dad was in charge of, of softball tournaments, and he had to make arrangements between the troops to, to play games and, so, and tournaments and stuff like that. and. The, this man said, well, yeah, my dad had mentioned at some time that, that he had uh, messed up his knee. Now, I didn't know if it was in battle or how he did that. And so I'm reading my dad's, and he's, then he's reading one of my dad's letters, and here my dad explained that one guy busted his collarbone in their softball game, and another guy uh, messed up his knee, and they were playing Troop A. And that wow. was his dad. And he said, I just had one of those moments. I go, wow, that was, that my dad. It's a history book, but I'm not a historian. You know, I, 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 I wanted to tell the GI story and, and, and my dad told the story, and I just I just put it together, and um, so if people can get uh, a warm fuzzy from that, then great. Harold Voltz's book of his father's letters is entitled World War II: Cavalry Reconnaissance Scout. It's available in some of the area libraries, and there are a few copies for purchase at Auntie's Bookstore. I'm Doug Nadvornik reporting. On April 17th, the Spokane County Courthouse will be busy with formerly incarcerated people who will engage with judges. They'll be hoping for a reduction in the debt that sometimes buries them. When people move through the court system, they're often assessed hundreds of dollars in court costs, and if they're not able to pay, interest is assessed. 
My name is Lane Pavey, and I'm the director of Ida the Time and Revive Reentry Services. Lane Pavey and her group are sponsoring the April 17th event as a way to lighten the burden of those who carry that debt. When people get convicted of a felony or any kind of charge, whether it's at municipal or the district level courts, they also come with these court fees and fines that add on to the conviction. So even if someone goes to do time, they still will be saddled with some of these some of these fines that are mandatory and some are discretionary. And so everyone who has a felony uh, in the state of Washington, as well as some of the lower courts as well, um, they are going to have, they're going to go, they're going to get sentenced to prison and they're going to have maybe $1,500 worth of fines. Some people can have $30,000 worth of fines. And then they're going to start accruing interest at a 12% interest rate that compounds quarterly. So they'll go in, they'll serve their time, and they'll go in with 1500 and they'll come out with 15000 And when you're in reentry and you're living with a felony conviction, it's really hard to get a job. It's really hard to rebuild your life and get back on your feet. And so the fact that the system wants you to give them this money all the time when you have, you know, you have to make sure that you can pay for your gas to get to your job. You have to feed your kids. You have to pay your rent. A lot of folks will have child support that was also backing up too. all of these bills just to be able to meet your basic needs. And then you're also having these legal financial obligations that if you do not pay them, you risk being put in jail, even if you cannot pay them and cannot have it, you cannot find a job. Uh, so it was really causing a lot of stress on the reentry program, reentry process. Um, and what it was really doing is 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 sentencing people to even more uh, length of time tied to the court systems, and not really letting us kind of move forward with the things that we needed to do in order to be successful in reentry and not go back to prison. So that all changed in uh, the summer of 2018 because we passed a, a reform bill that dropped that 12% interest rate for any fines and fees that were non-restitution. So victims, anything that's for a victim, even when the victim is like an insurance company, um, they still have that 12% compounding interest. But anything that was like a court fee or fine, the interest stopped accruing in July of 2018. And um, now the law also allowed people to go ahead and ask the court if they would waive any of the past interest. And so people have thousands and thousands of dollars that are just interest. Um, And people are supposed to if they weren't able to pay the debt within 10 years, it was supposed to kind of just go away or stop if they were making payments. Uh, and what they would find is all of a sudden they were getting this reauthorization period of, nope, now it's going to be on your uh, on your record for another 10. And we need to keep collecting. And it's just like this debt that just would never go away. And so people were tied to the system for 20 years after the date of their conviction. Um, and so that is is something that the new law says if you apply to the courts uh, and, and ask them to waive your past interest the court shall waive and so that's what our judges are doing with this lfo reconsideration day is they are allowing people to apply and they're just following the law and they're waiving that past interest so that people aren't saddled with that and then they're helping them set up payment plans if they actually have an income and are, are able to pay that are much more manageable and people can actually start working towards paying off the the principal amount of those debts without feeling like it's beating them every month as it's getting bigger and bigger with that interest. So do these people have to come in with some sort of proof or some sort of 
of documentation? So we're asking people to sign up on a Google form where you're actually going to get a chance to kind of check some boxes around what is your form of income. If you have like SSI or TANF, if you're eligible for Medicaid, if you're on food stamps or ABD, you're actually eligible to put your LFOs in remittance, which means that they will not attempt to collect them right now because you're getting funding from the government yourself. And they also will not attempt to collect them until you're off of whatever that government assistance is. So it just kind of stays there. Um, but you will not go to jail for failure to pay. Um, and then for folks who do have an income, we're just asking them to check a box that says, yes, I have an income. It's about this amount. And um, we're kind of going back and forth with the judges right now on whether or not we want people to actually bring pay stubs or, or a, a tax return or if we want to just allow people to sign under the penalty of perjury saying, this is what I make. Um, because people are signing under the penalty of perjury, if they were to lie about what they're making, that would cause them more problems. And so we're actually hoping to make it quicker by just allowing people to sign under the penalty of perjury that, yes, I make about $1,800 a month, $2,500 a month. And then the, the clerk's office is willing to set up some very reasonable, fair payments so people can start working on getting that principal amount down. So I'm trying to picture what this day is going to look like. April 17th, and uh, the courts, I assume, are going to be shut down for this day. No, no, no? they're still going to run court. Really? <laughs> yeah. So how's this going to work then? So uh, we're asking people if they would prefer to come in the morning, midday, or afternoon. We are going to have special rooms in the courts, um, and we are going to kind of funnel people through a line, <laughs> which if you've been in prison before, you're used to standing in lines. So uh, we'll have about 20 volunteers, and if anyone is interested in volunteering, we're actually going to start a new Google form for the volunteer list that you can sign up on our Facebook page, our I Did the Time period pay, uh, Facebook page. Um, we're going to have 20 to 40 volunteers. Some will be attorneys to help people sign off on the motions and orders. But most of us will be kind of helping people funnel through the line, making sure everybody has enough water. You know, if uh, people are getting impatient, you know, letting people, someone stand in line for them and just kind of keeping an eye. We're going to help people move through the main foyer there and then over to the clerk's office and then up to the second floor and then into a, a kind of a conference room where you're going to be able to sign off on things with a prosecutor and an attorney to help you and then onto another room where the judges will be and they will sign. And then the judges want to take pictures with us. So <laughs> they want to be able to sign off on saying, I'm proud of you for making it through the system, and I'm happy to relieve some of this debt for you because you're you're doing better with your life. Your life's getting back in order. And they love seeing us post-conviction and post-prison sentence because they never know what happens to us afterwards. And something that Judge Moreno was telling us was, we really like to see that you guys have been successful and that you're, you're making it out here, and we want to be a part of saying congratulations. So it's a really cool kind of restorative justice community building uh, opportunity for everyone to feel like uh, we made it through. Lane Pavey is director of I Did the Time. Its legal financial obligations day is scheduled for April 17th. Those who want a judge to consider lowering their debt due to court costs can go to I Did the Time's Facebook page and sign up to participate. On Saturday, the Spokane Faith and Values online newsletter will hold an open discussion about talking about religion. This is the organization's founder, Tracy Simmons. When I started Spokane Faiths um, almost eight, nine years ago now, uh, I wanted the site to do something a little bit different, which was to create some type of community dialogue. And I didn't really know what that looked like. Uh, and so in 2012, actually, after the Newtown shooting, 
um, I thought that it was a great opportunity to bring the community together to have a conversation because a lot of people who were writing for the site, uh, myself, the journalist, um, as well as all of my columnists and the and the readers were all talking about how angry they were with God and how, how could God let this happen. And so uh, it was an opportunity to come together. And it was so amazing because we had it on a Saturday morning at a coffee shop. Um, and the, in that room were evangelicals and atheists um, and people of no faith at all and um, Muslims all coming together and they were um, just having this honest discussion and they were comforting one another um, and the room was full and I thought gosh this is a great way to do this and so we've been doing uh, coffee talks ever since um, it's not a great name <laughs> I couldn't think of anything better but uh, Spokane loves coffee and I love coffee shops and so I thought it was a great way uh, to, to bring people together. And so uh, for, a, for a while, we were doing it every single month. We would pick a topic happening in the news um, and then have a conversation around that, of course, if it related to, to faith or ethics. And then um, we a good problem to have is that we outgrew all of the coffee shops in Spokane. And so we started going to every other month. Um, and this will be the first one of 2020, and it will be actually at our own building in the Faith Center. And there will be coffee, free coffee provided by Revel 77. Um, and the topic this time, really, we're, we're kicking it off by talking about our own mission statement, which is promoting dialogue through online journalism and community engagement opportunities. So the title of this particular coffee talk is uh, Building Community by Dialoguing Through Differences. So religion is one of those uh, subjects that I think we're all told to uh, not talk about in polite company, that in politics and sex and, and that kind of thing. So how do you break the ice on a conversation about religion when you know that you may have se- people of several religious faiths who are there and you, you just want to be sure that you don't uh, offend them, for lack of a better term? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the magic, I think. Um, you know, one thing that's been really, really neat about what we're doing with the website, I think, is by having these offline conversations. So we're posting these articles on the website and we're posting commentary. We have 42 columnists. And so we're having all of these viewpoints from different different sides. You know, we have evangelicals and Muslims and, and Jews and conservatives and progressives all writing on the same website. Um, and you're not really supposed to engage right with with those different viewpoints but then we're asking people to come to our events and because we've been doing them for so long it's really hard to get really nasty and heated with one another because you're standing in line together to get coffee and you realize that oh you're just a fellow human and you live in my neighborhood and your kids are running around uh in the building together and they're friends maybe we should try to understand one another and so i think we've we've really struck that that balance, which is great. Not to say that the conversations at our coffee talks don't get um, impassioned because they definitely do. Uh, And I want that. I want them to be challenging. I think that's really important. Um, And my job as a moderator is to step in and kind of remind people why we're there when I need to. Um, It hasn't happened a whole lot. People seem to be pretty, pretty self-regulated, which is, which is really amazing. I'm in awe every time uh, we have these. Spokane Faves' next coffee talk, Building Community by Dialoguing Through Differences, is scheduled for Saturday at 10 a.m. at the Spokane Faith Center at 5115 South Freya. The public is welcome to come and participate. Inland Journal is Spokane Public Radio's public affairs radio program and podcast. You can hear our past programs at the Spokane Public Radio website or subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. And send your comments and story ideas to Inland Journal 
at kpbx.org. Appreciate your joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.